So I have to introduce our next speaker, and he and I go way back. I have stories, none of which I could share in this setting. Is that right, Scott? Um, <laughs> while we're not seeing lines yet for petrol, uh, like they had in the UK earlier this year, you've no doubt noticed in your daily life the effects of labor shortages, uh, what's called supply chain bottlenecks, um, ports bottlenecks, um, caused by the pandemic and exacerbated uh, by some misguided policies. And our next speaker has written extensively on the so-called supply chain crisis and has argued that most of the policies being suggested by politicians will do very little to alleviate it. Uh, Scott Linsicum is a senior fellow in economic studies. He writes uh, on international and domestic economic issues as one of our most prolific writers and tweeters as well. Uh, Scott actually started his career, uh, his policy career at the Cato Institute as an intern in our constitutional studies department. And from 1998 to 2001, uh, Scott was a trade policy research assistant before he headed to law school and he actually became an adjunct scholar with us in 2013 while he was also holding a, uh, a full-time job as a lawyer. And during that time, Scott authored or co-authored several policy papers as well as numerous op-eds uh, on trade and economic issues. Um, he used to come to town sometimes, uh, as, I, as David said, I was a trade policy scholar and sometimes I would uh, Scott would use my office while I was out of town and I would frequently get, you know, emails from him. Sally, why is there 10 pounds of cookie crumbs on your desk? How much do you be? It was disgusting. Um, Scott's routinely featured on TV, radio, print media, and has a regular column in the Dispatch newsletter, which is required reading for anyone interested in economic news. Uh, please welcome my friend, Scott Linsicum. Thank you, Sally, um, and thank you, everybody, for coming. <clears throat> I'm going to talk today about supply chains. Um, you've probably heard about them a little bit on the news. Uh, you've probably heard about that are maybe going to ruin Christmas. The president is on the case. Um, we have ships parked offshore, uh, containers stacked up. You've heard all about that. But what you've heard, I think, a lot less about are all of the policies that are contributing to our supply chain crisis. And a little bit of good news that we'll get to in a second, that private actors are responding quite quickly while uh, politicians in Washington are debating what to do. But start, first, let's start just with what's going on. Um, set that. Um, well, the, the pandemic's doing its thing. Um, it shocked global supply chains and the US economy. Major importing and exporting countries unexpectedly shut down, then they reopened, then they shut down again, and all on different schedules. Well, that, combined with abnormally high worldwide demand, fueled by fiscal stimulus in part, but also just economies reopening, retailers stockpiling, increased consumer appetites for goods. Well, all of that ran headfirst into finite production and transportation capacity, lean inventory systems, and those pesky labor shortages. You throw in a few factory and port closures due to COVID outbreaks and other emergencies, and you have a surefire recipe for supply chain chaos, and that's certainly what we've seen. Now, this intense stress on the system eventually resulted in limited supplies, 
empty shelves, higher prices, and those problems not only chilled economic growth, but they also chilled the Democrats' economic agenda and their political prospects. Um, the White House naturally established a supply chain task force and uh, a bottleneck czar to fix the issues. And they've been trying to work with ports and other transportation and logistics companies uh, to open up various bottlenecks. Meanwhile, of course, other politicians of both parties are promising easy protectionist fixes, tariffs, subsidies, localization mandates. Bring everything home, they say, and we won't have these supply chain problems. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, there is no easy fix. We now appear to be past the peak problems, but it just takes time to clear holiday backlogs, expand ports, build new warehouses and ships, train workers, or make other capacity expansions. And it's especially when paperwork-heavy paperwork federal procurement is involved. The calming of global demand won't happen overnight either, and now we have Omicron potentially to consider as well. But just as important as I mentioned are these political promises uniformly ignore two things. First, some good news. Supply chains have been adapting for more than a year, and they will adapt again by the time any government fixes are in place, and they'll adapt again when those government fixes are finally implemented. Second, however, the bad news. Many pre-existing policies at the local, state, and federal levels have intentionally diminished supply chain capacity, efficiency and flexibility, thus making it harder to ease those bottlenecks and to adapt to our post-COVID world, hopefully. And they're making the supply chain crisis much worse than it ever needed to be. So let's first again start with the good news supply chains adapting. Well, if you were to listen to certain politicians, you'd think supply chains were frozen in April 2020 uh, and thus require all sorts of federal fixes like semiconductor subsidies or infrastructure spending. In the real world, however, market participants since day one have been adapting. This includes investing in ports and warehouses and related logistics capacity, investing in the production of high demand goods in the United States and abroad. One of my favorite examples is that mask sales on Etsy, which is this a website for homemade goods, exploded last year when uh, masks were in high demand but hard to find. But we've also seen corporations shift into PPE and pharmaceuticals and batteries and, yes, semiconductors. And they're also diversifying their input suppliers. And that includes some nearshoring, bringing some production home, even some onshoring, but also just simply looking at other countries and other manufacturing facilities, uh, creating more supply stability through diversification. They're also changing their inventory strategies a little less just in time, a little more just in case. They're investing in automation. Uh, that includes capital expenditures and things like software and equipment, and that's way up right now. And that's driven in part by our labor shortage, but also COVID-related things like telework and increased demand for PC computer, for PCs and gaming systems and the rest. We also now see more investment in automated trucks to try to get stuff from those ports. And all of this is classic F.A. Hayek, the Nobel laureate who taught us about spontaneous order. And the, the truth is that by the time policymakers have decided finally what they're going to do and intervene in the market, it's going to look much different than the ones 
on which they based their decisions. And it's going to change again, as I said, by the time any government-supported production comes online. I think the case in point are these semiconductor subsidies I mentioned. Well, those have been bandied about for more than a year. There's still not law, but we're looking to spend $50 billion or more of taxpayer dollars on some of the richest, most cash-rich companies in the world, like Intel and TSMC and Samsung. Um, even though those companies have already announced massive planned investments, including in the United States. There have also been agreements between chip makers and their biggest customers, like Apple and Ford and GM, to nearshore production. Uh, because those customers have decided they want more chips closer and nearby. And we also see shortages already easing. And now, analysts are warning of a potential glut before semiconductor subsidies have even been implemented here. Now, of course, Congress doesn't seem to care. They're still acting like it's mid-2020. And it appears those subsidies will happen. Of course, we are trying very hard to prevent that. But again, unfortunately, these private actions are stymied, and they are stymied by all sorts of policies that are in the way. First, let's start with the ports. Well, longshoremen unions on both coasts have leveraged their political power and their ability to shut down the ports to negotiate contracts that have rigid work hours and prohibit efficiency-enhancing automation that ports in Asia and Europe adopted decades ago. Just last week, we learned that the longshoremen's union out in the West Coast uh, it will make automation, or anti-automation, I'd say, a key focus of its net contract negotiation next year, right in the middle of our supply chain crisis. Furthermore, however, the Jones Act plays a role at the ports. Well, and the Foreign Dredge Act combined make dredging U.S. ports prohibitively costly because you have to use American-made ships to do it. Well, that prevents bigger ships and more efficient and larger ports. Local zoning laws, especially in California, have prevented ports and other companies from expanding container storage. And as a result of these and other policies, not a single American port ranks among the most 50 efficient in the world. In fact, the largest US port system, Los Angeles and Long Beach, trolls near the bottom. It's no wonder then that these ports have struggled to process record container volumes, even as I mentioned, those Asian and European ports also dealing with higher volumes are doing much, much better. In fact, there's only been one major container port expansion since 2009 in Charleston. Um, next, policies have, have diminished available trucking and warehouse capacity, which is also, of course, desperately needed. California zoning and environmental regulations have discouraged or delayed warehouse construction around several of these large ports I mentioned. It takes several years longer to build a warehouse in California than it does in other parts of the country. And now, of course, our warehouses are overflowing with goods contributing to port backlogs. Trucking capacity, well, the United States has barred Mexican trucking companies, which have the largest and closest supply of potential trucks and drivers, from carrying freight within the United States or from Mexico inland, despite promises in the NAFTA to allow these companies to operate here and federal government programs deeming them to be safe and environmentally friendly. Immigration backlogs, totaling more than a million potential workers right now, are contributing to the labor shortage, which many port officials and importers and logistics experts blame for these trucking and warehouse bottlenecks. And then the Jones Act, again, by mandating that only American ships carry goods from port to port in the United States, 
puts additional pressure on inland trucking and rail capacity, exactly what we don't need right now. But wait, there's more. The United States also imposed high tariffs on chassis, which trucks use to carry containers from port to port. First 25% under President Trump, and then 221% under President Biden. The latter part of a law that the Department of Commerce cannot uh, suspend, even during times of national emergency or crisis, because that anti-dumping and countervailing duty law, or trade remedies laws, are on autopilot, these tariffs. Other obstacles, like Buy American restrictions for procurement, steel tariffs, are inevitably going to undermine any sort of infrastructure spending that ev eventually comes online because of the bill that was just passed. Now this is all, I think, a broader cautionary tale about political promises to fix the current supply chain mess with protectionism. Now leaving aside that private actors are multiple steps ahead of our politicians, protectionist policies would surely make things worse, not better. For starters, Domestic supply chains rely on most of the same labor and transportation and infrastructure that global ones do. Without substantial changes to those policies that weaken our global supply chains, onshoring is just gonna trade one vulnerability to foreign shocks for another vulnerability to domestic shocks, like say a freak ice storm in Texas. Indeed, food production is almost entirely domestic. About 80% of all the food we consume is made domestically. Yet it's one of the hardest hit sectors right now. So onshoring certainly is no easy fix. But furthermore, we have reams of evidence that protectionist tariffs, quotas, or buy local mandates impose high costs and make producers less, not more innovative and efficient. So pursuing those would now make the whole supply chain system even more sclerotic and costly and inefficient than it already is. So if you think supply chain shortages and high prices are bad now, just wait until we implement policies specifically intended to achieve those things. So with that, I thank you and I'll, I'll open it up for questions. I just, I just read in the Wall Street Journal that the tariffs on Canadian lumber have doubled. Yeah. And what's, why did that happen now? And what were they thinking? Well, they weren't. So this goes back to those trade remedies laws that I just mentioned. And it's another great example of just how messed up our trade laws and trade policies are. So under the anti-dumping and countervailing duty law, and that's what these uh, Canadian lumber imports have been investigated and found to have been subsidized or dumped in the United States. Well, the law allows for an annual review. Domestic industry, the one seeking import protection, always requests this, and then they try to inflate the duty rates during this annual review process of these duties that were already in place. And commerce being captured by the domestic industry, uh, the Commerce Department routinely finds higher duties uh, during that review period, and that's precisely what happened here. And because our laws are specifically designed not to allow for considerations of consumer interests or national security or public interest, like many other countries have laws specifically allowing for these types of exceptions. So again, it's essentially an autopilot. So this wasn't, you know, President Biden deserves some blame for maintaining some of President Trump's tariffs. But in this case, it's a far more systemic problem that's going to require legislative changes, not merely executive action.
Hi, is, is there any talk in Washington about what would be the ultimate mess up, which, which would be price controls? Uh, unfortunately, there's a, a little bit, but I think for now, they seem to be sticking away from, from price controls and more on uh, import protection. Um, the, the one that I just heard would potentially reviving the crude oil export ban. Um, you might not know, but up until about 2015, uh, the United States banned the export of crude oil, which of course was horrible for domestic oil investment, stability of supply, and global trade. We have a very interconnected energy, global energy system that requires us importing and exporting. Um, refineries abroad process a different type of crude. They actually tend to be good at processing the type of crude we now produce because of fracking. So, rattled, of course, by the current inflationary pressures that, it, of course, nobody saw coming in the White House, um, they're now looking at potentially reimposing that export ban, which, of course, would be um, a, a horrible, horrible idea. But fortunately, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of looking at price controls yet. Uh, I think a good subject for a Cato paper would be to study the uh, law in California, which is causing the trucking problem. Uh, they passed a law making Lyft and the Uber workers and everything yeah. employees. Now, those companies have now opted out of that. They've got lobbying power, but the trucking companies have not. And unlike in the past, when the trucking companies... Uh, most truckers work for large trucking companies, which is why the Teamsters Union was so powerful. Now, most truckers are independent contractors. And independent contractors, right. are, as truckers, are, will not go into California to do work because they do not want to get tangled up in that, yeah. that uh, tax regime and regulation regime. So uh, that would be a contribution to the supply side thing if you guys would uh, dig into it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and AB5, the, the law in question, is, is certainly, uh, you hear stories of this affecting uh, trucking in California. Now, I would note that um, it actually, the, the law does not apply to the truckers right now because they sued and, and pending litigation. AB5 is, is not in place. But what you are hearing from trucking companies is that just the, the threat, the risk of that is deterring, is deterring some trucking capacity. And this, again, goes back to... Um, what, what I was talking about, that there are, this is a death by a thousand cuts, really, when it comes to the supply chain mess and the policy side. It's not really one big policy. It's not just like, say, a 200% tariff on chassis, although that's horrible. It's dozens of policies implemented over time at all sorts of levels, state, local, federal. And these typically are done to help uh, some politically connected constituency. And in the good times, maybe, you know, a few cents on a t-shirt here and there, we don't notice. But in the bad times, when all these policies come together, well, you, you, you get a, a much worse situation than, than it really ever needed to be. Um, migrating from lumber to metals, I wonder what your thoughts are about the recently renegotiated metals tariffs with the EU and specifically with what seems to be an overly complex system that's going to make the purchasing decisions of American businesses particularly difficult. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very, it, the president got some wonderful headlines that he ended Trump's tariffs on European steel and aluminum. But the truth 
is, is unfortunately not nearly so rosy. As you said, instead of simply lifting the tariffs, which the president could do with a stroke of a pen, he could literally sign an executive order and tomorrow get rid of 25% uh, tariffs on a wide range of steel, which would be pretty nice right now, given the inflationary pressures we're facing, but also given that steel prices in the United States are almost double what they are in Europe right now, even more than in world export markets. And one of the reasons is those uh, steel tariffs. Another are those trade remedies measures. The steel industry has been quite effective in uh, winning about 200 different special duties under our anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws. Um, blocking all sorts of steel that we could use right now. But anyway, back to the European quotas. So the president negotiated quotas. Now, uh, quotas, as any economist will tell you, are actually worse than tariffs um, because they in induce all sorts of distortions, and these are, are no uh, exception. Uh, not only are, do they set the quota level, you get a duty-free amount um, at only 66%, give or take, historical volumes from Europe. Um, which I should note is a close ally, and these are national security tariffs, um, but it's only 66%. So that means that remaining amount is going to be uh, tariffed. And that not only creates a problem because you have uh, distortions there, higher prices and the rest, but the other thing is that they've divided it among every EU member country and dozens of types of steel. So when you put it all together, you're looking at about 5,000 different quotas that are going to be implemented January 1. Now, if you are a very large steel consumer, that's no big deal. You know what, you hire lawyers, you have them in-house. I used to be one of those lawyers. Um, it's great billings. Uh, but if you're a small guy, you're screwed. There's no way you're going to be able to negotiate, navigate that process. You're just going to simply avoid it altogether. Because if you miss the quota, let's say you have metal on a ship. The ship takes about you know, a few weeks to get here, and that quota gets filled up. Well, next thing you know, you're on the hook for potentially millions of dollars. I actually, in, in my trade lawyer days, represented a small manufacturer in South Carolina that had just this thing, that thing happened with a, a major aluminum shipment. Um, threatening about a thousand jobs in a small town in South Carolina. You know, our presidents talk about saving small town mill towns. This was a former textile town. Thousand uh, workers, jobs on the line because of uh, these these tariffs and these quotas. Unfortunately, really aren't going to um, fix things. They'll probably, like I said, make make things really worse for for a lot of small companies. Hi. Um, do you believe that inflation itself and the price distortions that have come from that play any or a significant role in the supply chain crisis? Um, I certainly think a little, uh, for sure. And, and it happens in two ways. Um, one is you have um, simply more demand. So that's all these dollars chasing a limited supply of goods is going to, uh, that's going to uh, cause additional pressure on a supply chain system that just simply wasn't designed. If you look at container volumes in LA Long Beach, for example, they're up something like 20% this year. And yes, the unions and the lack of automation are a problem, but uh, some of it is just massive demand. And that's gonna increase shipping prices, <clears throat> and that's gonna, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, go through the system. The other issue, though, is that producer prices are way up, and uh, the studies showed that uh, that 
is uh, those producer prices are translating into consumer prices as well, and that's a putting additional pressure on, on inflation. That's it? Okay. Thank you.